Hi! Hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me on a deep dive into the history of Christianity, the history of my faith, the history of the Bible, history of why churches were, some churches worshipped one way, other churches worshipped a different way, and the Reformation, and beyond, and all those kinds of things. Well, it was in that journey that I encountered the ancient Catholic Church. It looms large in church history, and there it was. And it was as I began to read from actual Catholic sources about what Catholics actually believed that I realized what I thought Catholics believed, what I thought I knew about the Catholic faith, was based in large part on misinformation and more often than not on simple misunderstandings. Simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week, I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I am joined by early church expert and author Mike Aquilina to talk about how the early church evangelized. It's a fantastic episode, and really, it's surprising. The answer is is quite surprising, because it wasn't through the means you might think. It was often, more often than not, through something called friendship through living a radically different way, life, as a Christian in the early church. It was different than the the pagans who lived a a very different way. But then by befriending people, by befriending non-Christians and living your life alongside them, answering the questions that they have, posing questions of your own, and listening. It's a fantastic episode as we dive deeply into the early church and the methods that those early church fathers recommended and, and wrote about in terms of how we evangelize. And I'll say this too, it's fascinating how that's a very different time, of course, 2,000 years ago just about, from then to, to now in the 21st century, a different context entirely, yet there are so many lessons and so many similarities that we can that we can see from this this pre Christian time to our current kind of post Christian time and lessons we can learn from the early church fathers, those very first Christians and how they evangelized that apply very much to today. It's a fantastic conversation. I think you'll love it. Mike's always a great guest to have on this show and one of my favorites to dig into the early church with. I think you'll love it. This conversation and others are brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordial catholic. If you want to help support this show, head over there and have a look. There are all kinds of ways that I try to give back to you. Monthly free draws, a, a free behind-the-scenes podcast for patrons only, and all kinds of things that, that I try and give back to make it a, a bit more of an incentive to support the show. But really, if you like this work that we're doing here, please do consider supporting the show. It's not my full-time job. It's becoming harder and harder to, to do this, to find time as our family grows and grows. And so any underpinning that I can receive from, from you guys really helps to keep this thing going and growing and really makes it possible week after week. So head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic and see how you can support this show and thank you in advance. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Mike Aquilina on how the early church evangelized. It's a great conversation. Please listen and enjoy.
Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for tuning in. If you are listening to us on podcasts, we're also available, I should remind you, on YouTube at youtube.com slash thecordialcatholic. If you're watching us, thank you. Please hit the subscribe, the, hit the bell button and subscribe so our channel keeps growing. And check us out on podcasts as well, everywhere fine podcasts are found. I am joined this week by Mike Aquilina. Mike is a popular sought-after speaker. He is a songwriter. He is a podcaster. His podcast is fantastic. The um, <laughs> Way of the Fathers. The way, I was going to say Faith of the Fathers, Mike, and I knew that wasn't right. The Way of the Fathers podcast, a fantastic podcast, I should say, and the author and editor of more than 60 books, including The Fathers of the Church, The Master of the Early Christians, and for our purposes here today, Out from Emmaus Road, publishing Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized. Mike, thanks for coming back on the show, uh, and and welcome. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me back. You never learn. <laughs> I never learned. No, no, I should know by now. You know what? I do. I do listen to your podcast every week, Mike. I do. So I sh- I'm remiss to forget the title of it. So uh, thank you for that fantastic work. And I was doing a quick back of the napkin math here, Mike, uh, just to figure this out. And I think I'm right. If I'm wrong, just correct me. But I, I have figured this out that for every book you've written, so every book you, you've written, if we gave every person on earth a unique copy of a different book that you have written, so a different title. Actually, every person on earth would get a different Mike Aquilina book. I think that's true. Is that right? I don't I think so. Ma- I did the math really fast, but you've you've published a lot of books, sir, and we're in we're in great debt to you. Um, so maybe not quite that many, but uh, but but a lot. And thank you. Uh, this latest book deals with how the early church evangelized, and uh, this, of course, is. A, a very popular topic for listeners to this podcast. So many, you know this, I'm sure you hear this all the time, Mike, so many converts to the Catholic faith come in by way of the early church. The early church fathers, they they encounter them. I think of uh, you know uh, Rod Bennett encountering the church fathers in, uh, in a Protestant bookstore and, and being blown away by how many different uh, writings there were and how, how substantial that collection is, right? And and so many so many people find Catholic Church through through your writing that you've done and through finding these these early early Christians and recognizing in them the, the Catholic Church and not often their own Protestant or evangelical church this is my own experience too I want to begin kind of by laying the groundwork here you actually begin in this book I think is fantastic by talking about how the church grew in those in those first centuries and kind of Contrasting that a bit to how we're how we're growing these days, and then you kind of bring about some lessons for us through the through the early church on on how we can maybe do friendship and evangelization better. But let's begin at the beginning of of you bring it here. How did the, the the church grow in those early early years? You talk about a couple of studies that that maybe had some di- difference of opinions, but fundamentally, what drove some of the growth in in the early church? When, when it first began? Well, first we have to recognize that the growth was astonishing. Yeah. You know, uh, Rodney Stark, when he wrote his book, The Rise of Christianity, came to the conclusion that the church grew at a steady rate of 40% per decade for almost 300 years, 40% <laughs> per decade. Every, you know, and that, that's all around the world. Um, so we, we, we look at that and we say, wow, how did they do it? How can we do that today? And it's interesting, you know, to, to ask the question, because at the time, Christians really had no access to media. 
Well, first of all, there were no media as we understand media today. You know, there's no internet, there's no radio, there's no television, right? There's no printing press. So you can't even you can't even run off pamphlets, leaflets, you know, to to hand out to people. You know, what was the medium that you had? Well, you know, you can copy out books by hand. That was very expensive and it wasn't going to get you very far because few people could read. Yeah. So what was the medium? Well, the medium was standing in the marketplace and and shouting and uh and since Christianity was illegal, the practice of the faith was illegal and it was a capital crime. If you did that, you might do it once <laughs> and, and, you'd, and, and you could be executed on the morrow. Uh, so you, you wouldn't have a lot of success bringing in a whole bunch of people. And if you brought in one person, well, then you just equalize that out by getting executed. Right. <laughs> so how did the church grow during that time? What was the medium, you know, for for um, for for evangelizing? And, and Stark and others have come to the same conclusion. It's friendship. It's friendship. It was the only thing the, fir- the cr- first Christians had to go on, you know, that they they got to know the people next door. They got to know the people who were in the lot behind them. They got to know the people who were in the market stall next to theirs when they were working every day. And they introduced them to their lives. And their lives were strikingly different, as we find in one early document. It's, you know, that that Christians really set themselves apart from others by the way they lived. And people um, people saw what they had and saw the love that they lived, and they wanted a piece of that. You know, Tertullian said that the the early Christians, um, they, they wore charity as if it were a brand on their body, right? That's how slaves were identified, you know, by the, the brand of their masters on their body. You know, and Christians wore charity, he said, as if it were a brand. And, uh, and, and that was our brand. Uh, you know, we, we loved others. And that kind of love was a rarity then. It's a rarity now. And it made for a strong foundation for friendships. Friendships were the way the church evangelized, the way it moved forward through those early centuries. It was the only the only way open to Christians. Yeah, it, it seems so, I don't know if goofy is the right word, but it seems so funny because you think of the strategies that some churches have these days. I think of... In, in the evangelical world, certainly, there, there are whole substantial uh, groups of people who, who are paid on staff at churches to do evangelization, and there's all kinds of schemes they come up with and try and do certain different, different things to r- really you know, bring the gospel out to the world, and of course, that's a really important thing to be, to be doing, uh, but, but this is so simple. <laughs> Right. Yes. Like, you know, now, now, you know, we, we want to see evangelization happen, but, you know, we, we want to watch it from an armchair, it seems. So, you know, we want to leave it to experts because we're so intimidated by it. We think that it's, it's, it's relying, it, that it relies on all these techniques and methods and that, man, I'm going to need certification before I can do that. So let me do this video course. And at the end of it, I'll get my certificate and then I'll be able to evangelize, you know, so it's intimidating that way. Or, you know, for some Catholics, it may be a turnoff because maybe they've um, they've encountered some some methods that are used by fundamentalists and evangelicals and they've been turned off by them. You know, they 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 feel as if um, as if they were being used, as if they were being made into a project 
you know, or or being sold Jesus in a you know a a a ninety second elevator pitch or that's that that kind of thing, and and that just makes them feel a little queasy. So there are all kinds of um, wrong impressions we have about evangelization that it it needs to involve this esoteric knowledge or or uh, some kind of special certificate approved by the bishop or something like that. But really, it's what we're equipped to do from baptism. You know, we're supposed to go out there. And and make disciples of all the nations. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's that's brilliant, right? It's, it seems so because there is that that especially amongst Catholics, right? There is that that sense of evangelization being a, a negative thing, maybe, right? This thing mm-hmm. that, that that is scary or hard to do, or something that, yeah, like you say, that you've seen maybe fundamentalists do on on the subway or, or in the mall or on the street corner or something that that or, or on campuses. That's really a turnoff. But mm-hmm. as you say, we looked at the example of the early church. We looked at them for so many things. And here's another great thing we can look to them for, right? Just living out that, that life in, in a friendship. That's right. It, that doesn't require any special right. skills to be a friend to people and live out your faith, right? And they succeeded and, and not in a way that a mega church does. You know, a mega church, you know, gets filled to the rafters for what, what's the lifespan nowadays? Nine years. Yeah. And then, it, you know, the next. The next wave comes into town and everybody leaves this mega church to go to that one. You know, uh, that's not the way the church grew back then. You know, people people were going into something that wasn't entertaining them, something that might get them killed, you know, uh, and uh, and 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 they 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 went in eagerly, you know, and they went in for life and and the the growth continued through centuries. So, you know, I think we have a lot to learn from them. It's good for us to look back at them and, uh, and, and really, I don't know, put it under a microscope, uh, learn, learn how they did it and, uh, and, and how they approach friendship in general. Yeah, absolutely. So we talk about the early church, and I think there's a lot of misconceptions maybe out there about the early church until people actually begin to read about the early church. I know for me, and I mentioned this before, so many evangelicals, Protestants who who live out their faith and think they're living in kind of an early church type model, right? We we'd have these you know sometimes small house churches, these small cells of Christians who get together, and and we go, oh yeah, this is how the early Christians did it, and that I think is is true in part. We miss a lot of what else they were doing or did back then. But I want to take a second to kind of talk about what, what that looked like, what the Christian mm-hmm. church looked like in the early church. And we have episodes about this. You and I actually have episodes about this on, on this show. But I think it's worth kind of covering that ground is a little bit here. And you break up the early church into kind of two sections, I think, in this book, right? This kind of pre-Constantine church and then this kind of post-Constantine church. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, some listeners might immediately have alarm bells going off and go, yeah, there's Constantine, right? He corrupted the church and made them all Catholic and brought the ritual in and, and this and that, which I think we can safely debunk, and maybe you want to say a word yeah. on that in a minute. But let's just talk for a second about how this how this early church, the context, how they looked, how they operated as they began to then evangelize. What Was it these these little cells of Christians isolated from the rest of the world doing? Is, is there truth to that? What does that look like in the, in the pre-Constantine kind of era? Well, it seems like, it seems that the, the, that, that the church was underground for a lot of the time. Uh, and then it would be tolerated for a while. And then it would be, it would go underground again. Uh, there was persecution uh, for, for the better part of 300 years. Okay. We do know that. The laws were on the books. The anti-Christian laws were on the books from Nero forward. 
you know? So, so there was always a legal grounds for Christianity. Now, it was not always in the best interest of the emperors or the local government to prosecute those, those laws, all right? Because, uh, because sometimes you needed Christians to fight your wars, right? And to staff your army or to do other things that were, were necessary and Christians were the, you know, the best people you had at hand. So you relaxed the laws during the, those period. But then, you know, there would come another time when the laws would be back in full force. The, you know, the third century was a lot like this. It was up and down and up and down and up and down. Christians were always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, so, so sometimes there would be periods of peace, and during those times, sometimes they'd even build churches for themselves and have places to worship that way. Uh, these these Christian synagogues, some of some of which have survived from that period. Uh, you know, so so um, so so how how to describe it? It, it was it was um, it was a local phenomenon for most people, not because. Um, not because uh, it had it had to be, but because communications was so slow. Okay, you know, getting getting the word from one place to another took a long time. So uh, within a city, you would you might have several house churches that were meeting, uh, but they were always in touch with their bishop, and they had a pretty good uh, system worked out for that. In that, uh, in a lot of the cities, they would ordain seven deacons because that was the model from the Acts of the Apostles. And the deacons were really the eyes and the hands and the feet of the bishop. So the deacons could kind of fan out in the city and get to know all the Christian people and get to know their needs, get to know the poorest and what kind of assistance they needed right now. And they would get the word out from the bishop, whatever word that the bishop wanted delivered to his people. So there were pretty good lines of communication within the local churches, and the churches followed the same model that that they followed in 107 AD at the time Ignatius of Antioch was writing. Uh, they they had the same structure that they had in 107 AD when when Ignatius was writing. There was a bishop, and he had his presbyterate, his his priests, and uh, and then he had his deacons, the diaconate. We still follow the same structure today. Uh, Rome enjoyed a primacy from those early times as well. Uh, but again, the communications weren't really smooth. They weren't really easy from place to place. So, uh, so that, was, uh, that was mostly a primacy of honor paid. Uh, Rome was a court of last resort uh, for arguments and uh, and property disputes and that sort of thing. Uh, it, it's it's funny we have um, we have one instance in the third century of a of a persecuting emperor who called upon the the bishop of Rome, the pope, in order to se- settle a pro- property dispute in Syria, uh-huh. right? Because he couldn't he couldn't settle it. You know he couldn't figure out what these people were after so he asked the pope to settle this property dispute so you, again you have a persecuting emperor who's recognizing the authority of the <laughs> over the of the pope over all the christians in his empire amazing that's interesting that's phenomenal so things kind of shifted right post constantine and i mean i guess the the myth which we could send a second here kind of going over is that constantine came and the first christian emperor and legalized christianity and then the church completely shifted and became a political organ of 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 Rome of of Constantine and and his whatever he wanted to do with it right uh, yeah, that's unfair to Constantine it really is <laughs> okay. uh, because he you know he did legalize Christianity and thanks be to God for that I mean the the church had been praying for this for a couple hundred years so so God God seemed to be answering their prayers uh, in in uh, in Constantine. Uh, 
but but uh, you know he he didn't impose christianity on anyone he didn't he didn't make it the state religion he made it his own religion and he did give it a certain privilege but what he really wanted was for everybody to get along he's the first ruler in human history to talk about freedom of conscience the freedom to worship as you wish and he and he has several decrees from his from his long reign where he um he he tries to enforce this you know he tries to get people to respect one another and uh and he tries to allow genuine freedom of religious practice in the in the empire now Constantine had these ideas. They were very clear in his head. I think he learned them from Lactantius, his tutor, uh, when he was young. Uh, and uh, and 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 Lactantius had really articulated these ideas of um, of uh, of religious freedom and freedom of conscience uh, in in beautiful ways, developing on on earlier fathers like Justin Martyr and Tertullian, but bringing bringing these ideas to a new clarity. I, I think that's where Constantine got the ideas and that, and he, he definitely tried to live by those principles during his reign, his sons, not so much. Right. <laughs> and, and, uh, and a lot of those ideas went out the window and they were kind of heavy handed in their imposition of Christianity. And by the time you get to Theodosius in 380, well, you know, he's pretty much outlawing everything else. He's pretty much making sure that if you're not Christian, you understand you're a second-class citizen. So that's that's a long time after Constantine's death. It's half a century after Constantine's dead that that these things begin to happen. Um, I think Constantine gets a bad rap. <laughs> I think that's pretty fair to say too. I, I I agree with you. So in this in this early church, you mentioned you know briefly the the idea wasn't to go out and and, and market campaigns or go on the streets e- even during the times when things were relatively safe and stable for for the early christians they weren't they weren't going out with with banners or with uh you know marketing themselves in a way that we might see churches try and market themselves these days with a social media campaign or something or or making the, their churches very palatable for for visitors or guests to come in right kind of watering things down and making it very accessible and easy to access they weren't watering down their faith i don't think they were they were striking up friendships right yes. and and you said that they they lived differently in a way that you you know they were Christian and making friends with those around them and and was it was it their lives and the way they lived that that seemed attractive in, in general to those people that were that were then attracted to that was it what was it the, the different way of living I think so you know Tertullian's writing in in 190 AD he's writing in one, uh, North Africa he's a convert himself uh, and he's a very accomplished man he's a jurist and he um he's describing what he sees and he he says Christians are everywhere you know they they'd 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 kind of become present in every business in town in in every kind of institution every establishment uh every uh every profession in town and he said that that the only thing that had been left to the pagans the only thing that had, that had been left to the traditional romans is the temples you know that's all you have left to yourself but christians were ubiquitous they were they were all over the place and and they were they were showing themselves to be good workers, reliable workers. Uh, they they were working for God. They were they were trying to be virtuous, and uh, and this generally generally makes for for good employees. So people noticed. And as I said earlier, uh, you know the other mark of the Christian was was charity, yeah. charity. You know that that uh, he, he he brings us out in his description of Christian worship because he's talking about what 
the church does with um, with what whatever comes in the collection plate. Where do we spend it? He said, we don't spend it on drinking bouts. We don't spend it on parties. We don't spend it on feasting. What do we do with it? Well, you know, we we take care of those who are suffering in the mines. We take care, ter- take care of prisoners. Um, we take care of slaves. We take care of those, uh, you know, orphans who've been abandoned. Uh, he goes through a long list of people who are in need, and the Christians are taking their community chest, and they're spending it lavishly on all these people, and they're happy. You know, uh, you know, it, it's it's it, it shouldn't be a secret, but it seems to be that uh, that we're happiest when we give ourselves away in love, when we give away the things we have, when we share what we have with others. Uh, I, I believe that the, the the those who were neighbors of these Christians looked at them, looked at their happiness, saw their homes and they said, I would love to have a happy home like that. How do I do it? And then they asked the questions. It was a dangerous thing for a Christian to. Um, to uh, to share his life with another, right? Because if uh, if it, it if it comes the season of persecution and you're denounced as a Christian, well, then your life is on the line. So the Christians had to make themselves vulnerable when they were making friends, uh, but they took that risk, and taking that risk, they managed to convert the empire. Mm-hmm. And it's quite radical. What that that charity is quite radical, right? For the time, I mean, we take it for granted now in a sense that there are. There are hospitals that take care of people, and there are profession, you know, there there are charities <laughs> that reach out to to homeless people and to and to widows and to orphans and right. to single mothers and these kinds of things. That's kind of taken for granted these days. But that, that was radical stuff, right? That was really the 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 cutting edge of of what we could call human rights, but 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 charity, right? Yes, yes. That the hospital did not exist before Christianity. Yeah. It's a Christian institution, and the same can be said of universally uh, available education and a lot of other a lot of other things that we think of as 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 ordinary um, monuments of culture. You know, these are these are the things that define us. The, these are the things that define our civilization. Well, they're Christian inventions. Uh, we don't appreciate that, uh, but that's that's what they are. Um, Christians were already laying the foundations of these things and were already known for, for, for doing these good deeds in the, the second century, the third century, and up into the fourth century when it all became legal. Now, at that point, Constantine did put the treasury of Rome behind so many of these great developments so that, uh, you know, within a, within a few years, it became a very normal thing for a city to have several hospitals, and they were funded by the state at that point. But often they were staffed by monks and nuns uh, because because they were the ones who were really giving their lives to it, and they were fearless in their treatment of the sick. Yeah, that's really interesting. And two, you mentioned the risk of all this, right? That's so, mm-hmm. I mean, in those times of persecution, I teach RCAA at our local parish, which is the class for listeners, the class for adult converts to the Catholic faith. And I always talk about the early church and how, and some of the roots of RCAA. I probably I learned this from you, from your books, probably actually. Some of the roots of these things in the early church and how it was kind of done in secret. And some of the titles we use for, for, the, the, for the people who are in the program as we go through the program and some of the, the terms we use are terms that come from the early church and the, the it's this idea of being kind of surrounded in secrecy and sometimes and being initiated into these secrets mm-hmm. of becoming Catholic and in part I think because it was a risky thing to to become Christian at that time yeah. right and so these these Christians these Catholics who are putting themselves out there who yeah. are living in the public square who are befriending people who who aren't Christian who aren't Catholic that is a a dangerous thing to do right in a really real sense <laughs> 
it's dangerous and, and you know it, it it's 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 prudent uh to um to to kind of give give them a gradual introduction to christianity uh you know so so that um so that, that we didn't lead with the creed for example you know we you know well, what what is this christianity well let me let me begin by reciting the nicene creed to you well there's the nicene creed wasn't there during the time of persecution <laughs> but there were other creeds okay um uh so so no that's not the way you begin um uh, also they didn't reveal the sacraments until the people had were ready to receive the sacraments you know so that came much later uh in, in the in the the development and and you know you you can imagine why okay you can imagine this coming from from hard-won experience well you know what is it that you christians do well you know um we go to worship and we eat god oh you eat god do you right and and who's your god well he was this guy he was a poor man who lived in the backwater, you know, of the provinces, and he was crucified. That's how he died. He died as a criminal. And they say, "Oh, okay, got it." Right? No, you know, I, I, you know, I think I think that there's a gradual way you introduce people um, to the ideas uh, about of, of Christianity that are scandalous, right? Uh, when you think about it, the first Roman persecution of, of Christians um, was not for sedition. It wasn't even for arson, you know, which is which is what Nero first tried to pin on the Christians. It was for a crime called hatred of humanity. Hatred of humanity. Now, now what did that mean? What did that mean? And how could he make that case? Well, it's because humanity, the people Nero knew, were so identified with their sins that they consider them to be part of human nature. You know, what, what is it with these Christians? They have a problem with adultery. They have a problem with fornication. You know, they have a problem, uh, you know, with suicide and euthanasia and abortion and infanticide, because these were all, you know, blanket, condemned in a blanket way by the early Christians. Um, and and, and the, the pagan world just could not understand these things. So there was probably a gradual way of introducing people to these ideas. And, and it's best if that takes place in the context of friendship, because you already have trust based on other things, right? Um, we're, we're co-workers, right? And I've come to trust you, you know, in, in exchanges of money, or we're next door neighbors, and I've come to trust my kids in your house, right? And, uh, and that sort of thing. So we have a foundation of trust in our relationship, and we might be open, you know, more open to these strange ideas of Christianity, if um, if if we're receiving them within the context of friendship, well, it's funny because this is the same today in large measure, right? You yes. you can you can read all you want about the Catholic faith from coming from a non-Christian point of view, or even from a from a Protestant point of view, but often it's those people that you meet that take you that 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 bit further, right? Or or say, hey, you know what? I should look in more deeply into that, or or might trick you in the first place to looking into that. Is that the person that you meet? Often isn't just reading a book in isolation or, or hearing an idea in isolation that really gets us going forward. It's it's that friendship. And I think then too, you know, I want to talk at the end of the podcast about lessons and lessons to take away for us these days. But even right here, I can see an obvious one that we're not under threat of persecution as, as Catholics, yes. at least not yet in in large mm-hmm. measure or, or a serious way. But we're afraid sometimes to share our faith with people when we have it pretty easy, Mike. Yeah, we do. We do. I, I mean, uh, every now and then we get bullied on social media and that sort of thing, or we'll, you know, we'll get shut down on social media. But we're not ex- experiencing uh, the kind of persecution you find 
you know, uh, in 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 uh, early Christian history, we're kind of like in that that period. Uh, you know, there's a passage in the the Epistle to the Hebrews um, where uh, where it says, you know, you 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 haven't yet been tested. Uh, to the shedding of blood, you know, as if to say, you know, stop your complaining, you know, you you know, you haven't suffered the way a lot of other Christians have suffered and are suffering today. And, and we haven't, we've got to keep speaking the truth now because the truth is getting rarer and rarer and the falsehoods that are being spoken are getting bolder and bolder. And there are people who are just believing them in a zombie like way. Um, So if, um, if we don't say anything, if we don't speak, then uh, then this is going to continue, and uh, and and things will get worse, and eventually, you know, we'll we'll see that kind of persecution that we don't want to see. Um, we do tend to romanticize um, the early Christians because because so many uh, willingly died as martyrs, and they lived during these times of persecution. But we have to remember that when the fathers talked about this, they talked about this as, as, as a terrible thing, because so many committed apostasy as well. So many. You know, Cyprian of Carthage has these anguished descriptions of Christians falling, falling over each other, rushing up to offer sacrifice and to burn incense before the genius of the emperor. You know, that should strike terror into our hearts. You know, um, uh, you know, we we may not be as ready as we think we are. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And I think, too, so so many of those issues that come up, right, those things that you're talking about, these 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 falsehoods that are spreading further and and getting more and more bold. Right. I think of. I mean, it's it's one thing to to call out something like, say, gender identity or or sexuality or these things that the Catholic Church has quite profound teachings on and it's quite yes. clear on. It's one thing. It's one thing to call that out in social media and just put it out there, like this is you know what, and and get that backlash. But to actually befriend somebody and have those conversations in that context of friendship, right, is pretty powerful. I can think of yes. some 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 friends that I that I've had and have who were quite. On, on a wide margin on, on how you think of these things, but having profound conversations and be able to say, hey, you know what? Like, you believe that, but here's what I believe, and here's where it's rooted in, in, in natural law and in the scriptures and in yeah. tradition. And I maybe haven't moved a mind or a heart in, in that conversation, but that, that person that I'm friends with walks away with much more knowledge of what the church teaches. And it mm-hmm. isn't just yelled at them on social media or something. It's actually through the context of, of this friendship, right? That, yes. that begins to move those those needles or at least introduce ideas that they can't just dismiss because well, now right. I've, I've heard more of the whole story here. Right. Right. And when and when they think about these positions, they're not they're not thinking about them in the abstract anymore. They're thinking of them as these these positions that are ardently held by a good friend of mine. So your face is on them. All right. And it changes the way they think about these things. They're not just things that are done anonymously or remotely or things that are done, you know, in one of those red states, right? (laughs) You know, uh, ideas that are held out there somewhere. No, I know somebody who thinks these way, these ways, and, and, and he's not a nut, trust me, you know? So, so, you know, it, it does, it does, um, it does bring the conversation, the big conversation uh, to another level. Yeah, I think so. Well, I want to dig into some of these stories here uh, because you, you, what you do is you bring the early church fathers here to us and some of their insights on friendship and these kinds of things. 
And I want to begin with Irenaeus if we can, because uh, at the time of this podcast, which is in, in oh, I don't want to date it too much, but mid-October of 2021, I think I think it is, end of October, uh, we're looking at possibly a new doctor of the church. Pope Francis mentioned this. I know that you're very excited with this. I am a big fan of Irenaeus and was very excited also to hear this. And some, some mutual friends we have, too, were quite thrilled uh, watching Facebook kind of light up when this was announced by, by, yes. Pope, by Pope Francis. But uh, here's a guy who has a lot of wisdom for, uh, for Christians, a lot of insight for us uh, into what the early church looked like and some things that are going on there. What, what does he tell us about this idea of, of friendship? Like what, what wisdom does he have to bear there for us? Well, he's he's talking about how the friendship of Christ shows us that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament, uh, because because Christ in in uh, in in the fifteenth chapter of Saint John's Gospel, Christ says, you know. Uh, I have called you friends, right? No longer servants. I have called you friends. So he's acknowledging that there was a period of servitude and that's over because I have befriended you. So this is something profound that's happened in history. Now, why is Irenaeus bringing it up in this way? Well, because he's combating the Gnostic heresy, which said that the God of the Old Testament was a different God from the God of the New Testament, and the God of the Old Testament was wicked, and the God of the New Testament was good, right? And so he, 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 uh, he, he kind of put them in opposition, uh, and, uh, and, and he's opposing this heresy, and he's showing that, uh, that Jesus acknowledges this. Now, um, the kind of friendship that we see in Jesus is happening because of the incarnation. You know, this shows us the extent to which God would go in order to be near us, to befriend us, to draw us near to him. This is, this is so huge, um, because if you look at the way the pagans thought about friendship, you know, the, the Aristotle and Cicero both wrote a lot about friendship, and both of them had the same idea that, um, that you had to have kind of an absolute equality in order for friendship to go forward. And Aristotle even... Um, even uses as an example the the you know what he calls the absurd idea of a of 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 a friendship between a god and a man right that this is just something that could never be because there's no equality there whatsoever all right they're 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 so unequal that friendship would be would be impossible but uh, you know cicero also you know said that that you couldn't have friendship between people of different social classes or people of of different wealth level levels you know that this just would not would not be possible. Um, so, so Irenaeus is is bringing up this passage uh, of Jesus, who's God incarnate, declaring friendship with these twelve. Okay, and and even these twelve, they weren't they weren't anything to brag about. Okay, they weren't aristocrats. They were ordinary laborers, and sometimes they weren't the brightest. You know, they didn't get what he was trying to tell them. They don't come off looking really brilliant in the Gospels, and, and yet he's befriending them. You know, and he's declaring that at, at the Last Supper. Um, so, you know, what does that do for us? That uh, that kind of sets a standard of friendship that we're to live up to, okay? Because we're to live the imitation of Christ, to take the title from the famous medieval book, right? We're supposed to be imitating Jesus. We're supposed to be participating in his life. And if we're participating in his life, we're participating in that kind of friendship, we have to imitate him in his openness to friendship, even, you know, with people who are unlike us and unequal to us. 
Yeah, and I think of some of the parables that Jesus shared, right? Who's your neighbor? Well, here's a story, and he ends up being the person <laughs> that we like the least, right? That we hate yeah. sometimes. Yeah. And, I mean, that that gosh, that's so hard. I think of a couple of things. I think of the, the amazing experience that I had walking into to maybe my first or second time going to Mass, and... Uh, one was that I actually on a campus university here and I went into mass, a weekday mass thinking no one was going to be there and who knew what it was like and I didn't have any clue only to see such a diverse group of people the ethnicities, the 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 genders, the yeah. well, there's two genders, but for the, you <laughs> yeah. know the the people from all walks of life. There there were professors there. There were there were moms with, with tons of kids in strollers. Yeah. They were just it it was incredible, diverse in all sorts of ways. I wouldn't have imagined. And you think these are the people that that are are here. This is the body of Christ that you are to. To, so befriend in this context, right? These people are all your fellow Catholics, whether or not you would ever befriend them on the street or, or even have a chance to meet them. Yeah. And then I think also of then the, the, the parables and yeah, those people that you would potentially like the least are, are, are your friends, right? And that's the model that Christ gives us for, for yeah. friendship sometimes, right? Yes, 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 and and it seems to it seems to have worked. Uh, you know, when we talk about Irenaeus, we're talking about someone who lived in the one seventies, and he did live during a time of fairly intense, though decentralized, persecution. Uh, it was happening mostly through mobs and riots, local action, that kind of thing. Uh, but it was uh, but it was happening. Yeah, and yet the church was growing so fast that it was alarming the authorities because these these Christians come up with revolutionary ideas. You know, one of the the the, the ideas that was most threatening at the time was that women should have vocational freedom. They should have the freedom to choose not to marry if they wished, right? Uh, or they should have the, the the freedom to say no to a marriage that that they they didn't they didn't agree to, um, and uh, and this was considered. Uh, you know, inimical uh, to Roman family values. And, and it, it, it seems to have been one of the great motives for the persecutors. It's, it's certainly um, one of the charges that comes up um, most frequently in the, um, in the lives, the acts of the martyrs, the early martyrs, you know, that, that women especially were denounced for refusing marriage proposals. They were denounced as Christians. <laughs> that, that's remarkable to think, right? That's what they were. Yeah. Wow. Yes. That's really but it is upsetting the apple cart. You know, yeah. it's, um, yeah, it's, it's changing something that, that the Romans see as essential to their structure. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's, um, it's a new world order. Yeah. Wow. That's really fascinating. So you dig into a number of, of uh, early church fathers here and, and talk about their different ideas and, and some of their friendships together. D- do you want me to pick or do you, or do you have some favorites you want to go into? I'd I love have favorites. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to hear your favorites. I mean, there, there's, I'm sure they're all your favorites, but I'm, I'm sure you probably have some favorite favorites in this. In this well, my, my, my absolute favorite in this book is, is someone who's new to almost everyone who reads the book. Marcus Minucius Felix. Most people who pick up this book have never seen that name before. And he's often counted among the church fathers and his writing. We have one of his writings and it's called the Octavius. That's all we have, right? And it's and it's usually in the collections of the Antinicene fathers, the very early fathers of the church. Um, his, he was writing around 190 to 200 AD, thereabouts. But most people have not heard of him. Why? 
Well, because he wasn't writing about churchy things, right? He wasn't writing about churchy things. What he did was he wrote a novelistic account of a holiday weekend he spent with two of his friends, two of his colleagues. Minucius Felix was was a was a judge in in Rome. He, he, came, he had come from North Africa. He was working in the city of Rome, and he had two friends who were also Africans working in Rome. They were also lawyers, right? And so they were close friends and close colleagues. And uh, during one of the Roman holidays, they decided to go to a resort together for for the long weekend, right? So they, they, they do that and they go off to Ostia, which is one of my favorite places on earth. <laughs> but they go off to Ostia. And the Octavius is just his memoir of that weekend. And it's beautiful because he describes things that you see at the seashore, you know, kids who are skipping stones on the water and that kind of thing. All of these things he describes as they're walking along. But mostly what he describes is the conversation. Now, when these three friends leave for their vacation, two of them are Christian, one of them is a pagan. Very early in their time together, um, uh, one of them makes a, a, a gesture of affection toward a pagan idol. One of the Christians speaks up and 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 kind of witnesses to him that this is a, a, a dead idol you're showing affection to. And and he said and he says, well, you know what? That hurts when you say that to me. He said, I think that we should do what lawyers do and we should have a debate. Right. And so they have this measured discussion. Right. And it's it's back and forth. And it's tough. I mean, they're saying hard things to one another because they're disagreeing about the most important things in life. So they're saying these things, but they're listening to each other and they're speaking to each other's concerns. What's really interesting is, that, you know, they ask Marcus to be their judge uh, while the other two's the other two argue their their, their respective cases. Um, but by the end of the weekend, the one pagan Cecil is won over to the position of his Christian friends just by the force of their arguments, uh, just by the the strength of the conversations that they had had, had through the weekend. Uh, and he, he declares that he's going to become a Christian. So I really believe that that document in particular is extremely valuable to us because it shows us a process that we just get hints of in other texts. Just little hints. But here it's this novelistic description of a real memory of an episode from his life. And it's uh, it's it's very beautifully told. Uh, it's an entertaining read. Uh, and and I'm I'm happy that I'm introducing uh, the story of um, of Minutius Felix to um to uh to to readers in my century. So many of them. It's it's funny because so many of the people who've read this book have told me. That's my favorite chapter in the book. <laughs> That's phenomenal. And of course, lesson there, Mikey, is go on a Roman holiday with some friends, one who's not a Christian, and then and that's the formula, right? Roman Roman yeah. holidays by the sea. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Go to Ostia. Yeah. <laughs> What's beautiful about Ostia is that you can still walk those roads that those men yeah. walked and uh and they're all still intact. Ostia was uh was a, a city that was dredged out of the mud about um in the last 50 years. Wow. Oh, that's remarkable. Yeah. So, so we did actually set up a ministry that just sends people to, to Ostia with a non-Christian friend and then let, you know, let's nature take its course. It's that's a great model for a ministry. <laughs> what we need to do is follow the model of, of, of Minutius Felix and his, his friend Octavius and their ability to listen, Yeah, to listen to yeah. what people are actually saying 
and uh, and and separating the true from the false, and then responding to the misconceptions that are out there about Christianity and doing it in in um in in a measured way, uh, in in a in in a dispassionate way, because they they manage that all through the all through the um uh, all through the book. Uh, what's interesting is that. Uh, they never they never quote scripture. I don't think they ever mention the name of Jesus, but they're using what what we would call natural theology yeah. to respond to these these anti Christian arguments. You know the, um, the you know uh, where 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 and and we 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 hear the same arguments today where people will say how can you believe in a God who's all powerful and all good and yet you know he allows suffering. You know. They actually field that question there at the end of the second century, and they field other questions that we're hearing from the new atheists today. But they really listen, and they really do respond in terms that the other person can understand and deal with. Yeah, and they and they had that friendship first too, right? Which is so important yes. because yes. that's where I think we sometimes miss. Again, this is the whole premise of this book you've you've brought to us, Mike. That we we miss that notion that this is. A, a friendship, a relationship that's going to, you know, you can debate all you want on, on YouTube and I yeah. can post all kinds of videos with apologetics and, and promote them and put them on Twitter and retweet them and all these things. But really it's those, it's those friendships, those connections that are really going to, I think most of the time make that difference. Right. And in that context, you can have those discussions and, and those should be cordial discussions. And, and <laughs> this is a great example of that, but right. It, it's in that friendship context, which is so important, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that that is my favorite chapter of the book. I also I also like the episode of um, you know, it comes from almost two centuries later of uh of the friendship of Basil and Gregory, yes, uh, yes. Gregory of Nazianzus, because uh, because they were two of the greatest minds, the greatest Christian minds in all of history. And you you know you think about it, they were college roommates. You know, they knew each other since they were probably in their late teens. Right. And uh, and they were both brilliant and they were both devout and they were both trying to find a Christian way of life. And uh, and they remained friends for as long as they were both alive together. Basil died first and he died well before Gregory. Um, but their friendship was not sugarcoated. OK, they had very different personalities and uh, and they often didn't understand each other. And uh, uh, and and they 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 often um uh, kind of uh, did wrong by each other through their misunderstandings. You know, Basil was one of these guys who was just a, a force of nature. He was a man of action. He was decisive, right? Gregory, you know, was kind of slow to take action. He thought about things for a long time. His ideal life was really to to be spent all by himself writing poetry. You know, that's what he wanted to do. Um, and yet, you know, he was he was kind of passive, too. And so so he ended up being forcibly ordained to the priesthood by his father. And Basil supported Gregory's father in that. And then Gregory kind of pressured or, or uh, Basil pressured Gregory into becoming a bishop, into being ordained as a bishop. And Gregory just gave in. Now, Gregory had this pattern of just kind of passively giving in and then resenting it afterward, okay? Uh, you know, just seething with resentment afterward and being kind of emo and passive aggressive, you know? And <laughs> and so this is the pattern in their friendship, okay? It was not, a, you know, this sugar-coated friendship. Um, there's a lot we can learn from it because they managed to struggle through, they managed to endure in spite of these things. Uh, it's Gregory who leaves us the final record of Basil's life where he comes to an appreciation of a lot of the things that Basil did 
<laughs> to him, but also did for him, you know, that he, he acknowledges that Basil was often right. And Gregory had not been willing to acknowledge that. Yeah. And that's a great friendship. I really love the, the, the story of the two of them. It's uh it's phenomenal. And of course those, yes. those, those hot and cold, you know, the hot and cold moments, the, the, yeah. the, the on and off again, but then that remaining, you know, that remaining friends and, yeah, and, and seeing that to the end like that, and I think it's really remarkable and, and a good pattern for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. And I, I think the guy, the guy who's most um, most associated with friendship, and because he thought most about it, wrote most about it, um, was was Saint Augustine, you know, who was such a warm figure. You know, he made figures when he was a child. Uh, he made friends when he was a a, a child, and he he uh, he kept those friendships alive through his entire life. You know. Some of these people followed him when he went to college and followed him when he worked overseas, then followed him back to Africa and followed him into the priesthood and then lived with him in community, you know, when he was when he was a bishop. Uh, Augustine had the capacity, great capacity for making friends, and he made them all through his life. And so he thought about friendship and he wrote a lot about it. You know, his um, his his autobiography, The Confessions, is structured kind of along, uh, you know, these episodes in his friendships. You know, when his friends lead, led him to steal pears, when his, uh, you know, when he was young and his best friend died and the, the grief that followed that 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 episode. Um, uh, these these are all the major events in his life. Um, they, they usually involve his friends. Uh, he he situates his conversion uh, then among, you know, in in conversations he was having with the friends who had followed him from North Africa to Milan. So so all friendship is the context for everything that happens in Augustine's life. One of the last passages I have from him in this book is where he wonders. He's a, a very old man at this point, and he's wondering aloud, um, you know, whether it's worth it to make friends, you know, when you outlive them in old age. And, and you have to say goodbye to them one by one. It's so heartfelt. Uh, so in the course of my Augustine chapter, uh, you know, you really find this great mind uh, and a very warm person and master of friendship, really, considering friendship from so many different angles. Yeah, and such an important figure in the church, right? So, of course, what he has to say on anything should be important for us to mind, but, <laughs> yes. but, but a wealth of knowledge on, on friendship, right? And, and so important. Yes. I want to then ask you, okay, so the, the, this, this book is in the context, you know, written about the early church in our 21st century, almost the 22nd century, 21st century context. One of the things you highlight that, that really struck me as I read this is, you know, that, that, that growth that the early church was experiencing, that 40%, we're not there anymore. And no. meanwhile, yet we live in the completely where we are in the Western world and, and most of the world in a fairly free society in terms of freedom of religion and these kinds of things. But that that's you know in our comforts that's we're not we're not growing anymore quite quite the yeah. opposite in some cases right yeah. so what what can we take away from the early church and how they did evangelization how they did friendship that we can carry forward in a, a much different time and place we find ourselves mm-hmm. in today not anywhere like the kind of explosive growth and un, you know and, and persecution and it, it's very different so what what can we apply. I think our times are defined almost by by an epidemic of loneliness and uh, and a, a famine uh, of friendship. I mean, uh, uh, 
there, there have been longitudinal studies that track friendships in the United States, and uh, and you know they're not pretty. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a, you know that we we see that the the experience of friendship is declining. You know that uh, there are a lot of people who um, who who just say they don't have a single confidant in their lives. They don't have anyone they can rely on, anyone they can open their hearts to. This is this is pretty tragic. In England they've they've recognized that um that this that there are, you know, pretty bad health, public health consequences uh from social isolation, from loneliness. And they've actually established a ministry of loneliness to try to deal with the problem. You know, we Christians should be convicted by this. We're supposed to be making these people feel wanted. You know, if we're doing our jobs as Christians, we're supposed to be in their lives. We're supposed to be friends to them, to the most difficult, right? Yeah. Just as Mother Teresa was. Um, and and we're not. So many people are living such lonely lives today. And they're probably, you know, some of them are living those lives on our blocks, you know, not far from where we're sitting right now. So what are we doing uh, to to overcome that? I, I think that that we we have to start thinking in those terms. We have to start thinking about what we're doing to relieve the loneliness that's out there, um, because because there are a whole lot of people waiting for another human voice in their lives, um, and uh, and and people just aren't willing to share that way. We'd rather surf the web or get into arguments with people on the other side of the country, you know, and in the com boxes of Facebook yeah. or Twitter or whatever, you know, and and uh, in, instead of reaching out to the people who are close, close by us. Um, I think in so many ways, we find ourselves in a world that's a lot like the pre-Christian world, where we cannot count on Christian assumptions among the people around us. But we have to believe that there are people who can be converted, you know, the way those pagans were in the Greco-Roman world, and that the friendships that we make with them can be the context for their conversion, the, 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 uh, really the the medium uh that that brings christ to them uh you know that that i think is the lesson from looking at these lives of the early christians to looking at the success they had and uh and and then looking around us and and wondering how we might do the same thing yeah and it's in those i mean I mentioned this before but it's in those contexts where you had those conversations that somebody can go oh yeah i never Never thought of that before. Never thought of that this thing that way. I kind of you mentioned before, but kind of this this zombieification of of people's beliefs, right? We, we so many people just inherit these different ideas from the zeitgeist, from the, from right. the world, from what they watch on Netflix, from media, right? And don't have somebody going, oh hey, you know, I'm your friend. We we work together. Like let's get a, at the whatever the water cooler in the, in the break room having a coffee, and, and this comes up, and oh well, here's a brand new you know, context for this thing that I just assumed was everyone believed in was true. Here's the Catholic perspective. And suddenly, wow, I'm thinking this is really interesting, right? So yeah. I think you have those lonely people and you have those people who haven't heard these ideas because they don't, right? They aren't out meeting Catholics and we're not making the effort to to meet them, I think. And right. And, right, and it doesn't take, a, like you said before, a, a degree to do this. It just takes being being a friend, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah, and that's hard, and that's vulnerable sometimes, right? But but I think that's definitely that's a, that's our calling, right? If we're gonna mm-hmm. if we're gonna model the early church on if we are going to, especially I think, say these converts like myself who are attracted to the early church in so many ways, and seeing that these these Catholic ideas you mentioned before, but you know they had there, there was a bishop and there was the Eucharist, and these things that are very very uniquely Catholic. 
we have to go the full way and begin yeah. to begin to live live you know in, in like you say a way that is not so dissimilar as the early church was in context that you know that that was pre-christian i guess we're largely more and more post-christian right and so yes. the ideas are are sometimes as novel as they were were back then now again right they've become novel again because there, there's a decrease in in those being the norm these these yes. christian ideals right yeah yeah. yeah, there's a saint of the last century, Saint Jose Maria Escrivá. He um he had a great line. It was out of a hundred people, we should be interested in a hundred. Yeah. Out of a hundred people, we should be interested in a hundred. And you know those hundred people, they're all interesting. You know, once we get to know them, you know, at at the at at first we might think I have nothing in common with this person. But if you spend a few hours, even spread out over a couple weeks, talking to someone, you'll usually find something that you have in common. Something that can carry the conversation forward and and carry a relationship forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And of course, what underpins this is is that is the Catholic life, right? The sacraments, right? The the Eucharist, prayer. I mean, doing these things. We're not going out there on our own to to uh, to, to make friends and evangelize. We're strengthened by those things we receive in the sacraments, right? And and that that yeah. carries us forward in a really powerful way. Right. Yes. We're imitating Christ and we're participating in his life. We're simply doing what he did through his incarnation. We're going to places, you know, that that it may not be natural for us to go to into into other people's lives. But that's what God himself did. And we're imitating him when we make friendships. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Mike, I always appreciate your time and conversations. You always have some some great things to say, great stories to tell, and great perspective on the early church, which is so important and so attractive to so many people looking looking into the Catholic faith and looking into the roots of their own Christian faith and, and where that takes them. And this is a fantastic uh, another book for your for your collection, your your worldwide uh, book tour. Eventually, I think one book per person. I think is your is your goal, which I think we can get there, Mike. I mean, you, you have time. We have lots of time left. I think that's a good. Oh, who knows? <laughs> We're up. But I, I am fascinated by that period of history, and I think we have a lot to learn from yeah, it. Absolutely, and you're teaching us. So thank you. Uh, I, this book is Friendship and the Fathers: uh, How the Early Church Evangelized. It's from Emmaus uh, Road Publishing. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, to find that. What else do you think listeners might be interested in uh, in this kind of vein, this topic? I know that I ask most guests where they can be found on Twitter or on the, a cool, splashy webpage. You always say go to Wikipedia because that's your most recent, uh, <laughs> which is fantastic. So people can go there to find other links, other, you know, your, your complete, I think, uh, bibliography. But what yeah. are the books you think listeners might be interested in checking out that, that you've written that might be in this uh, a similar vein? Well, I've written a lot about this period. Um, my, the book a lot of people know is is the Fathers of the Church. Um, I've also written the Mass of the Early Christians, which is another one that's 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 sold quite a few and is used as a textbook in some places. Um, I've taken a, 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 a few kind of unusual approaches to the period. I, I wrote a, a, a history of medicine that just focuses on on how the, the early church fathers invented the hospital, and that's called The Healing Imperative. I also wrote a book called Villains of the Early Church, which looks at, you know, all the troublemakers in the early church and uh, and how the church kind of combated bad ideas and uh, and persecution in its own way. Um, and uh, that, that book... You know, paradoxically, is 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 one of my funnier books, actually, <laughs> and one of my favorites too. That's a fantastic book. <laughs> thank, thank you, thank, thank you for you. that. Listen, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. 
I, I want to well, say thanks thank again you. for having me back. Yeah, I want to <laughs> say God bless you and the work you're doing for the church. It's it's fantastic, uh, much appreciated. And I know there are just so many, so many people who, when I said them having you back on the show, said, "Yeah, we love Mike," because so many people who listen to this show are, are converts, and and really, it's through work like yours that they are they can see. They can see the Catholic Church. They can see the footprints, the the fingerprints of the, the the faith that we love in those very first Christians and how they lived. And that points us, you know, that that points them to Roman, and then that begins a conversion experience. So thank you, Mike, and and God bless you in that work that you're doing. Oh, God bless you in your work. Well, thank you. <laughs> Take care. Well, my friends, thank you once again for joining us on the Cordial Catholic. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'd love to hear your feedback, cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I get lots of emails. I write back to them as soon as I can. I promise they stay in my inbox until I can get back to you. So please do let me know who you are, where you're listening from, and why you continue to listen. What do you like about this show? It's That feedback is so important to, to keeping this thing going and, and growing and knowing what direction to, to take it in. So please do reach out. TheCordialCatholic.com is our website for show notes and behind-the-scenes stuff and, and blog articles as well. We're on social media on Instagram and Twitter at Cordial Catholic, on Facebook at The Cordial Catholic, and on YouTube at YouTube.com slash The Cordial Catholic to watch what you are hearing. Please do find that channel, subscribe, and hit the bell as well so you are notified when a new video comes out and won't miss a thing. And thanks. Patreon.com slash CordialCatholic or PayPal.me slash CordialCatholic to support this show. And thank you. Thank you to the fantastic patrons and people who are underpinning this show. It would not be possible, really, literally, without your help. So thank you, friends. Uh, please do subscribe to this podcast, follow it wherever you find it. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, take a second to leave a rating and write a little review because that really helps to, to push the podcast out to new people. They'll, they'll see that review, they'll be curious, and they might check out the podcast. So please do that if you can. And please let, let, let a friend know. Word of mouth is a fantastic way to spread the podcast and, and spread this mission. That's the whole point, right? This, this mission. Thanks, guys. Please pray for me. Know that I'm praying for you, too. I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you guys, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.